Yes, welcome everyone. We are in the post-human era. What does this mean? What does it mean to be post-human? We are going to explore this fascinating, inspiring and exciting notion in our podcast, Post-Humans. Plural because we are going to interview scientists, artists, philosophers, scholars, and everyone who is engaging with this notion and who is helping us to understand more thoroughly and more deeply what does it mean to be post-human in the 21st century. So please be ready for a fascinating journey into the post-human. So, dear posthumans, I'm very, very excited to introduce you to a great uh, scholar of our age, Professor Kevin Lagrandeur. Uh, Kevin Lagrandeur is not only a main uh, voice in the field of posthuman studies in relation to literature and ethics, but he's also a great uh, friend, a colleague, and he's a co-founder of the New York Posthuman Research Group. Uh, the uh, doctor and professor Kevin Lagrandeur uh, teaches at the New York Institute of Technology here in New York City, uh, where he specializes in technology and culture. He's also a fellow of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology and a co-founder, as I mentioned before, of the New York Posthuman Research Group. Dr. Lagrandeur has written many articles and conferences presentations on digital culture. I would also like to mention that he's not only a very renowned scholar, but also uh, he has been uh, writing for uh, um, popular publications such as uh, USA Today. In this uh, conversation, we're going to um, specifically talk about a book which I highly recommend for anyone interested in literature and artificial intelligence, which is Androids and Intelligent Networks in Early Modern Literature and Culture, which was published by Rutledge in 2013 and actually got a prize, which is uh, exciting, really uh, something really special to mention. Um, was awarded the 2014 uh, Science Fiction and Technoculture Study Prize. So please, um, I would be very, very happy to welcome Kevin Lagrandeur to our conversation on posthumanism. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being here with us today. My pleasure to be here. Awesome. So Kevin, I'd like to ask you first uh, um, one of your main works, which actually is about digital, digital culture and let's say kind of the, the roots of posthumanism, the roots of the discussion of technology from ancient society to uh, to the conversation that is uh, held today. And there are a lot of similarities that you have actually brightly underlined in your first book. So if you don't mind telling us a little more about that. Yeah, I, I think the thing that's important is that there's a sort of precursor to the post-human. That's what uh, the, this whole topic of my, the undercurrent of my first book is, um, that our preoccupation uh, with technology, with smart technology, extends all the way back to ancient times. Aristotle, in his Politics, his treatise called Politics, uh, talks about the possibility of making machines that could do work by themselves and would understand what the master wanted and get the work done. That way, his society wouldn't have to deal with slaves. Not that they didn't think slaves were an ethical, but um, some people in Athens did. And also, Aristotle didn't like the fact that slaves were very difficult to take care of. So he dreamt about a lyre that could pluck its, its, uh, its own strings, or a weaving loom that could know what to make and make it automatically. And then, so you, there you have, two, over 2,000 years ago, 
people thinking about offloading their work to an intelligent automation. And that, um, my book traces that all the way up through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and to our time. That's so interesting. Mm. And if you don't mind, I would like to ask you which kind of machine was Aristotle thinking of? Because obviously computers and all this kind of stuff came much, much later on. So which kind of machine he's talking about? Yeah, that's a good question because the science is very different. Exactly. In each of those <laughs> like eras. Stone machine. I don't know. Right. Like... right. No, yeah, no electricity, yeah. no digital. Um, but but what, what they did all the way through, in starting with Aristotle's thought of, of things in terms of, the, of what they knew, and back in uh, Aristotle's day, they, they were really skilled engineers, um, but they were semi-mythological engineers as well, like Daedalus. Mm -hmm. So he points to Daedalus and some of the inventions Daedalus made. Mm. Um, and to him, Daedalus was alive and, and real. He also points to uh, the Iliad, to Hephaestus and the, the smithy god, who had made artificially intelligent androids they were made of gold and they were female and they waited on him um, and helped him with his, his work. So semi-magical, but there's always a little bit of science involved because actually in Aristotle's time there was um, something has been found called the Antikythera mechanism. It was made uh, about 250 BCE by Greek engineers and it was a miniature computer that was hand cranked and all it was so... The gears were so well made that it could compute the exact location of every planet in the Greek universe at any given time on any given day. And they, they used it to predict uh, phases of the moon, um, eclipses, and when the next Olympics would be, that kind of thing. So they had some pretty advanced science that a lot of people don't know about. That's so interesting. And how these kind of developments were followed up by people who came later on? Because here we are talking about many centuries before the Common Era. So what happened again, like uh, for instance, during the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, if you can tell us a little more of the development of those ideas. Especially interesting in the Renaissance because they really go back to the Greeks. Yeah, uh, well, Aristotle's work was never completely lost to Western civilization. So all, all of the succeeding generations had access to Aristotle's politics and to the Iliad. And so they saw those same ideas, and maybe because of that, maybe not, but most certainly they, they, uh, they did the same kinds of things. Engineering with clockwork mechanisms um, was especially um, a fine point of science all the way through. In fact, the equivalent of our, our rocket scientists back in the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and, and Aristotle's time were really clockmakers. They were the most intelligent, most mathematically gifted people, and the best engineers. So um, most of the mechanisms that actually existed that seemed intelligent, could move by themselves, um, like automata, automatic dolls, were clockwork mechanisms. But in the meantime, in literature, the imagination went much further. And like Aristotle imagining weaving looms that could weave by themselves, writers imagined much more complex things. Uh, for instance, um, usually with people who are geniuses. So one of the first instances, ironically, was a pope, um, Pope Sylvester, who served as pope around 1000 AD. He was a polymath and really brilliant. He studied with um, the Arabs, brought Arab Arabic numerals to Europe, also brought um, the engineering of how to make clocks and organs to Europe. And it was so awesome that, that people uh, 
thought he could do pretty fantastic things. And so people later, a few years after he died, the rumors sprang up that he could make an intelligent talking head out of metal. And it would predict uh, the future of what was going to happen and could see things at a distance. So that was one example. But there's this whole stream of, of robotic or proto-robotic creatures stemming from there all the way forward. You know, um, Thomas Aquinas was supposed to have made one. Robert Gross Test, the, the great Franciscan scientist and monk, Roger Bacon, and so forth. And, and those stories about those people proliferate all the way through the Renaissance. That's so interesting. And before we go to our current time, uh, how does the golem, the Jewish golem, enter in the conversation? And also, what about Descartes and his idea of machines? So I just wonder how Descartes maybe was influenced by Aristotle, if you can tell something about it. So I would ask you these two questions before we go to the now and how all this history has influenced the way that we are actually uh, embracing technology as a society. So let's go first, maybe if you don't mind, to the golem, Descartes, and then mm -hmm. to us. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the idea of, a, of an intelligent artificial android, uh, there's a whole line that comes from Aristotle and sort of Western science, but Western science also blended in magic of Kabbalah mm -hmm. and um, also of uh, the humanistic uh, sort of hermetic science. Um, there's this, this quasi-mythical character named Hermes Trismegistus who supposedly lived for a thousand years starting in the time of the ancient Greeks. Anyway, there was an al alchemical text that came from Western sources, Arabic sources actually, in the, into the West, that had this quasi-magical, quasi-scientific um, information, mostly alchemical. And that was brought to Europe uh, from uh, the Arabic countries by people who were translators right around f in the 1400s. At the same time, um, the Judaic Kabbalah was being translated into Latin um, by the Italians mostly, um, Mar uh, Marsilio Ficino. And so those things all melded together. Right around 1500, Kabbalah, um, Hermetic science, all became very popular, mainly because of Marsilio Ficino mm. and um, Pico della Mirandola and uh, those folks. So all of that came together right around 1500. And, uh, and then people started learning about stories that had started in the Middle Ages about the golem. Uh, and then that also of, of the homunculus from Hermetic Science and the golem from Judaic Kabbalah. So the golem was an artificial android that was made um, by a very adept rabbi with his assistants in the middle of the night, usually near a river. They would make a man out of dirt, out of earth, imitating God's creation. And then they would walk around it uh, reciting the secret names of God in Hebrew, and supposedly you'd have an animated human humanoid that would come alive, and it could be used as a, as a servant. The key thing that, that my book talks about is the thing that unites all of these androids mm. is their slave potential. Exactly, which I also want to that talk about. That leads to the modern time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And what about Descartes before we go to, to the now? What about Descartes and his idea of machines? Yeah, Descartes had an interesting idea of mechanism. Well, he had a mechanistic idea of the universe that, uh, that we're all sort of uh, meat machines, mm -hmm. but we have a soul, whereas nothing else does. All the other moving organic creatures around us lack a soul. We have the soul, but we're still a mechanism. And he makes a point in his, one of his discourses that if I saw you walking down the street, how would I know if you're a human being or just an automaton? Because... Mm -hmm. 
by his time, there were some really good automata mm -hmm. being built. So he doesn't think of it in terms of servitude, but um, along the lines, most of the time, the idea of making smart mechanistic servants was an undercurrent. And we've always been fascinated by that. I think it, I have the theory that it's an archetype that's sort of built into us, into our dreams of existence, all the way back to the beginning of having some other intelligent thing we can offload our chores to. Slaves are the, were the usual result of that, but I think people always felt uncomfortable about that at some level. And so now in our era, we've invented artificial slaves that can actually do that. This is a topic that I think is very, very important. And I personally think that it's um, not the way to address artificial intelligence is not as uh, digital slaves or artificial slaves, although it's very current in our society to say that robots are good to take, <clears throat> you know, like to, to do what we don't want to do. So again, uh, I would also address that in ethical terms. But do you think that this way to look at artificial intelligence, to look at machines from the very beginning, constructed this idea that we now have of, again, artificial slaves or digital slaves, the idea that machines are okay as much as, as they do what they, we don't want to do and as much as they, as they don't take over. So this idea of the fear of AI takeover is because the slave now is rebelling. And I personally, as a post-humanist, I'm very much against this idea of seeing the robots as the other. I don't want a robot slave because I don't believe in slavery at all. But it's very common. So this idea uh, of our society, yes, we should embrace robots, but as much as they are going to be lower than us, doing what we don't want to do, and uh, never ever take over the human supremacy. So how do you feel about this uh, uh, history of, uh, of ideas really mm. uh, um, nourishing this uh, current idea of uh, AI as the other, AI as the digital slave? Yeah, that's a persistent idea in my book and in a lot of the um, articles I've published is that we have a simultaneous fascination yeah. with our own innovations and our innovative abilities and a fear of it at the same time because we are like children with huge brains. We make these, these innovations that could kill us, the nuclear bomb, for instance, and, and now, you know, artificial intelligence. Uh, right now, there's a lot of hysteria about, um, you know, we're going to create a Terminator scenario where we'll will make an ascension AI that will kill us all. That's highly unlikely, according to all of the computer scientists I've talked with. Um, very unlikely that we'll get a sentient um, artificial intelligence either. So for that reason, I mean, my Roomba vacuum cleaner, which is my robotic vacuum cleaner, we have two. I don't feel guilty having them clean my house because they don't, they don't have feelings. They're not conscience, conscious. Um, if the unlikely event happened that we did come up somehow with sentient artificial intelligence, and there are avenues that are theoretically possible that could happen, then we'd have a real dilemma because despite what you say, that is the way we use robots and the reason we invented them is to offload chores to, um, I don't want to vacuum my house, my, especially with the cat litter on the floor, so my robot does it and I don't have to touch the stuff. Um, but there is that deep fear uh, along with the fascination that runs through all the way through history that our slaves will become our master, the, the Hegelian dialectic. Yeah, exactly. um, and that if we offload chores that are too important and take brain power, um, we would be offloading stuff that was too important and would ultimately give too much power to another intelligence.
that could then realize, hey, wh why am I a slave? I have all the power, and then enslave us. That's, that is the, a big fear, comes out a lot in sci-fi movies. And I think the real lesson there is it makes us think about how we treat each other as other living things. First of all, Kevin, I would like to thank you for this incredible conversation. Now you know why he's one of the leading voices. His knowledge is extremely uh, inspiring for all of us. So first of all, thank you so much, Kevin Agrander, for being here with us. And thanks all of you.